0: Hello and welcome to the Fit to Transform podcast, where you learn how to train and diet effectively and, most importantly, how to maintain those results for life, once and for all. I'm Nikias Tomasiello, a transgender training and nutrition coach working online with anyone who's ready for a true lifestyle transformation, anywhere they may be in the world. As a friendly reminder... Any and all information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult with your doctor before implementing any changes to your diet and exercise program. With that disclaimer out of the way, thank you for being here. Now, grab yourself a cup of tea or pre-workouts and enjoy. Yo, welcome back to the podcast. Today, as promised, I have Eric back. And this time we are going to talk about a a recent paper, once again, another preprint by Zach Robinson and colleagues titled, Exploring the Dose Response Relationship Between Estimated Resistance Training Proximity to Failure, Strength Gain, and Muscle Hypertrophy. As I was telling Eric just before we started recording, we're going to focus primarily on the muscle hypertrophy-related findings. So this is a topic, Eric, that I find super interesting and uh, to set the scene for everyone i would want to ask you what was the uh, state of the evidence on this particular topic so what did we know about the relationship between proximity to failure and muscle hypertrophy before this preprint came out
1: i like the way you framed that up Nickyus. um yeah just uh maybe six months at most prior to this coming Mm -hmm. out as a preprint I had the privilege of working with uh, my PhD student, uh, Martin Ruffalo, who's mm-hmm. doing his PhD on the topic of failure. And one of the papers that's coming out or has come out of his PhD was a systematic review with meta-analysis on the topic of failure and training to failure. And uh, prior to that, we did have two other meta-analyses published in the last, I want to say, like, collectively seven, eight years. Um and each one, if you actually look at some of the forest plots, which for those who aren't familiar with what that is, it's just kind of a, uh, a graph that kind of has on the right favoring one condition, on the left favoring uh, the null or the other condition, and just seeing where the mean difference in each one of those studies falls, whether it's leaning significantly or not towards the null or the uh, the actual condition. So. In the traditional meta analyzes on this, it's always been a binary comparison, training not to failure or to to failure. Um, And when you look at that, and especially when you do things like equating for volume, um, you have historically seen non-significant differences between failure and non-failure. But one thing you will notice is that the studies seem to lean in the direction of failure being a better thing for hypertrophy. and that's, you know doesn't necessarily match the hyperbole of statements about failure, like only the last two reps count, or the effective reps model, or uh, some of the other types of uh, discussion you have colloquially around, around this topic. But it's at least a similar direction, like, yeah, if you train closer to failure, we seem to get smaller impacts on hypertrophy. So I was really... Uh, pleased to see our meta-analysis come out that Ruffalo led because we did something relatively unique. Um, We specifically acknowledged in a scoping review just prior to that that, hey, there's a lot of inconsistency with the way in which failure is defined. Mm -hmm. Um, The most standardized objective way of measuring failure is what's called momentary failure or momentary muscular failure or momentary muscular fatigue, depending upon how it's uh, written in the paper. But Essentially, what it means is where someone is actually observed to fail a rep on the concentric portion. So they are attempting a rep but unable to complete it. And that point, is considered momentary muscular failure. Um, and I think probably even a better term would just be momentary failure because we don't know why. You know, we think it's because of, you know, failed the contractile ability to overcome the force. But it could be neuromuscular. It could be psychological, et cetera. Nonetheless, they tried the failed. Um, there are other definitions in the failure. Uh, de- uh there are other, are other definitions of failure in the literature. you will hear uh, voluntary failure, which mm-hmm. is basically when the participant believes they could they, they, they have failed um, which often is momentary muscular failure. it's just not necessarily verified for every single set or every single, every single participant. You'll see other things like repetition maximums um, where what, what typically happens in practice is they'll test a 10rM they'll have someone train with that load, and then they will go until they hit some form of failure. And then if they're able to exceed the old 10RM, then there'll be a load progression. So, um, But how that's operationally done can differ and be more towards momentary or voluntary. Um, and then another thing that we have is a more objective way of just estimating uh, how much the bar slowed down, which happens you get close to failure, and that's uh, velocity. So when we have an actual velocity tracker on the bar, a linear position transducer, it measures the rate of displacement. As you get closer and closer and closer to failure, the bar speed slows down, and eventually it will you'll you won't actually be able to overcome the rep. And we know the relationship between velocity and proximity to failure reasonably well. Um so there are studies where they compare different what's called velocity loss thresholds, which mm-hmm. just means, all right, from the first or fastest rep in a set, we're gonna allow one group to have a 20% drop in velocity which for most people, depending on the exercise, is gonna put them somewhere between like a five to a three RIR, maybe a two RIR, or versus a 40% velocity loss threshold, which is gonna put probably 40 to 50% of people at actual failure, and the rest probably between a zero, one, maybe a two RIR in some cases. So the reason why I brought up each one of those caveats is because they're all different, but they're all sometimes some form of failure. And what we wanted to do was to make these comparisons separate instead of lumping them all together. So it was a step in the right directions towards getting away from this very binary black and white view of failure versus non-failure. And that's just the failure side, Nickyus. like on the non-failure side, you know, if you make that a binary classification, that could be someone doing a zero RIR versus momentary muscular failure, which has been, you know, effectively looked at, uh, which depending on who you talk to is failure versus failure, Right. Or like a five RIR versus momentary muscular failure, or a five RIR versus zero RIR, or a five RIR versus somewhere between zero to two because it's voluntary on average. So what we did is we essentially did a series of analyses, acknowledging hey, there's different versions of this, and we broke them down into basically three: a uh, momentary muscular failure versus non-failure condition, a any other definition of failure versus failure condition, and then also different velocity loss thresholds. And what we found is similar to prior meta-analyses, there was this non-significant but leaning in the direction of failure, but only for the non-momentary muscular failure comparisons. Um, and a similar kind of leaning but non-significant difference for the uh, velocity loss threshold. So in the, essentially we found like, hey, if you're doing a 25% velocity loss threshold or higher, the the impact seems to be relatively similar between groups. And if you're going to or towards any definition of failure, um, we seem to be having, you know, a slightly but non-significant difference. So, look, it seems mm-hmm. like there's a disproportionate level of fatigue when you're going to failure uh, versus not. But in the momentary condition where we compared momentary muscular failure versus failure, uh, that effect mean standardized mean difference uh, was smaller and the p-value was higher, meaning that um, it seemed to, the, to, to to maybe that at least in the analyses we did with the available studies, momentary muscular failure was something that, you um, was not necessarily incrementally better than voluntary failure so uh you know we we communicated that and it seems to be something that is perhaps maybe not the case or represented by just the studies we had um or potentially you know that there, there is more to that based upon the the series of meta regressions that robinson has just put in preprint
0: Thank you for explaining all that. And uh, dear listeners, just so you know, if you want to hear about Martin Raffalo's side of the story, I actually recorded an episode with him back in the day that was episode 23. So I'll link that in the show notes. But Eric, based on what you said, what I'm hearing is that previous studies um, explored this relationship, assuming that failure was one condition with there was a standardized definition of it and versus non-failure being also a single condition with no differentiation really between what it was to be five reps from failure um, as opposed to four reps from failure or three or, or fewer or more. So is that correct or do you have anything to add?
1: I would just say that there are some studies which did a good job of having a specific proximity to failure. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is, is that there has not been consistency in the literature. And there are also mm. some studies that were like, yeah, we're gonna have you do five reps with your prior ten RM. You know, so there's there's gonna be a messiness around that. So yeah, some studies with, within the study, you're you are seeing variation in what is uh, submaximal and even some variation in, in, in failure. Um in other studies, you see a very consistent pattern of, yep, that was this failure and this was this proximative failure. However, um, they don't necessarily have a lot of studies that use the same protocol to have a comparative you know, analysis. So when you, when you group them all together, you're introducing some
0: variability. That makes sense. So then how is this paper by uh, Robinson and colleagues different what does it what did they do that was different from the previous literature a lot
1: and um, they introduced some new types of variability but they also likely overcame most of that with uh, a pretty large sample size Mm -hmm. so instead of looking at the literature and going all right any study where they had some version of failure or velocity loss to compare to something else so we can get different proximities to failure like we did what they did is, okay, any study where we can extrapolate the proximity to failure, we're going to include it. So this nearly, I want to say, like tripled or might have quadrupled the number of studies that we could have looked at, which is a good thing. It also created a ton of work for them. And That's why it took over a year for them to actually do the analysis. And huge kudos to the team. Uh, a lot of really good people are behind this. I'm obviously very biased. Martin Ruffalo is on the paper. Zach Robinson's on the paper. Um, Jake Remerts on the paper. Uh, Josh Pelland is on the paper, all four of those folks. I'm an external supervisor for the PhD. Dr. Zerdos is on the paper. He's the head at FAU, He's my colleague. I have an adjunct position there, and he was also my supervisor, and he's my colleague at Mass, so he's a good friend of mine. Um, and Ivan Yukich was on the paper, Is also my PhD student. So mm. um, this is kind of asking mama bear what, what they think about her children. <laughs> like, they're amazing, of course. But no, I think they, like as objective as I can be, I think they did a very good job with this paper. So. They included papers on uh, cluster sets versus traditional sets, because you can make an inference about proximity to failure, especially in the cluster sets where they track velocity. Uh, they included papers that had velocity loss, like, like we did. They included all the same papers that had failure definitions. Uh, and more importantly than simply just lumping things into this binary comparison, what they would do is, for each one of these various study types, uh, they extrapolated an RIR value, a repetitions in reserve. So um, for example, if they had the non-failure group doing sets of five at 75% of one RM, and that's supposed to be half of the available reps, um, you know they would use the typical uh, relationship that is group average correct of how many reps are allowed at a given percentage of one RM. The type of thing you've seen in most textbooks. You know we can do two reps at 95% of one RM, three to four at 90% of one RM, five to six at 85% blah blah blah. So, and that's, you know, when you've got large numbers and you're dealing with group averages, accurate. Um, but, of course, it's inaccurate for some of the people in the study. So, there's variability. There's error here. Um, so, between using velocity, um, extrapolated proximities to failure based upon known percentage 1RM and uh, REP relationships, as well as the few studies, which are very few and far between, which is an important point, people are actually reporting RIR. Um, they were basically able to create a continuous analysis rather than a group versus group analysis. So Mm -hmm. to be clear, when we do a meta-analysis of failure versus non-failure, even if we do three different sub-analyses like we did in our uh, meta-analysis, those are three mean difference comparisons, right? Um, So that's kind of like doing a study uh, of one group that did one thing, one group that did another, which one is significantly greater than the other. It doesn't Mm -hmm. tell you whether a third group would have been even better, combination between the two would have been better, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. A continuous analysis is when instead of treating the variable like two distinct things, you're treating it as a scalar value or a value along a continuum, which essentially proximity to failure is. You can be 10 reps, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 from failure. You can be at the last step you think you could do. And you can actually go and actually fail on a rep. So a meta regression is what actually a series of meta regressions is what Zach Robinson did. So a regression who those who weren't familiar with it is simply just plotting two variables or actually multiple variables. variables in the case of a multiple regression and understanding their mathematical relationship. The most mm-hmm. simple one is to see univariate linear relationship. People have probably heard of like an R-score, like a, just a Pearson's correlation. If I was to regress height and weight, I would probably get like an R-score of like .78, .8. And that mm-hmm. just means that the majority of the variance in height and weight they are, are explaining one another, probably 60 70%. Uh, now, of course, we know people who are very large boned, or maybe they have a fair amount of body fat, uh, or they have very small skeletal structures, they're very skinny. And just because they're tall doesn't necessarily mean they weigh more than someone who is shorter than them. Right. But if you were to just go, okay, generally as height increases, weight increases, we would all accept that to be true and we know it. Okay. And that relationship, the variance in that relationship, about 60, 70% of it is explained by height. Cool. You can do that with much more complex things like, all right, I want to see how much sex body fat percentage and height explain weight. Now mm-hmm. all of a sudden, it's gonna explain more of it. And depending upon the things that you uh, put into this regression, it may not remain a linear relationship. It may be curvilinear, it may be logarithmic. It may have a U shape. It could be doing all kinds of stuff. So what Zach uh, and, and colleagues did was they tried a few different uh, models. So they're creating these multiple regressions, using all these data points from all these studies to try to create a relationship between proximity to failure and muscle hypertrophy. And the most robust ones they did where they had enough data points was they were able to you know, kind of pare it down to the studies that were from a 10 RIR all the way to a zero RIR. And what they saw was that there was both a significant fit for the model for linear and also a disproportionate increase. So basically, as you get closer to failure from roughly two to zero RIR, and this is counter to their hypotheses, And I would argue counter to what we'd found previously in the literature, that the signal increases, not dramatically, but it's no longer Mm -hmm. linear, such that going from two to one to zero, each one of those steps seems to make that individual set more strongly predictive of hypertrophy. So this is pretty interesting. Now, if you speak to Zach, and he's the one who did the analysis, he's the primary author, and he's the most informed person as to what they did and understands it better than anyone else he will tell you that because of the noise around these estimations and how they had to extrapolate this data, yeah, you got a large signal-to-noise ratio, but what he is most confident in is the simple relationship and directionality, that going closer to failure in a vacuum within the kind of studies that were included, stronger signal for hypertrophy. He's not confident in the actual standardized mean difference point estimates for a 7 RIR and a 5 RIR to be like, Mm -hmm. listen, I can tell you there's a 20% better hypertrophy stimulus from that set at a 5 RIR than that set at a 7 RIR. So um, people who are taking the next step, even though you can mathematically to say, right, so it's actually better to be at a 1 RIR versus 2 by X percentage and therefore stimulus to fatigue ratio, yada, 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 and then like writing programs based upon that. He thinks that is a step too far, and primarily what this is doing is helping us understand this relationship, and the big caveat is when we look at all the studies that are included, the vast majority of them are probably what we would describe. The type of people who are interested in training to failure to get as much hypertrophy as possible are generally pretty pretty damn interested hardcore gym rats, Um, or they're people of a certain personality, uh, kind of like the the hit crowd, the people who are like, I'm only going to work out one to two times a week, but I'm going to be extremely efficient. They're almost a little more engineer minded. Like if you hang around the fitness industry long enough, you find the people they train to failure, either like bodybuilders or recreational or competitive, or the people who are thinking about this from a very kind of like almost economics perspective. Like, listen, I'm not a, I don't love the gym, but resistance training is good for me. And if I'm going to be in there, I want it to be effective. I want to get the highest return on my investment. And I'm going to go in once or twice a week, do upper, lower, or full body, a low volume for exercise and then just max out the the signal of each one of those sets kind of your typical high intensity training a la arthur jones inherited by mencer and then but not kind of the direction of bodybuilding where it's trying to optimize the stimulus by emphasizing intensity but it's trying to optimize the efficiency by training with the lowest frequency and lowest volume but the highest intensity to get the most quote-unquote bang for your buck so if that's your, your jam then I think this is a very, 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 very informative meta-analysis because most of the studies that we do on resistance training, it's two to three times a week in the lab with the participants, occasionally four. And it's with relatively low to moderate volumes compared to what surveys of bodybuilders show they're doing. So I am confident in saying that if you are doing low to moderate volumes and low to moderate frequencies, that you would probably be better off training as close to failure as you can Because specifically, that is going to optimize an already potentially suboptimal program based upon what we know about volume. And also, I can't make statements beyond that because we haven't meta-analyzed that. You know, if we restricted this analysis to only train participants who are training four times per week or higher with 10 plus sets per muscle group, it would be a much, much, much smaller analysis, and it might be different. But um, that's kind of just our first toe in the water. They did a lot of really cool um, moderator analyses, and uh, what that just basically means is they pulled studies out based upon different characteristics and saw if it changed the fit of that curve to the data, and there were some very interesting findings there.
0: I'm actually glad that you brought up the fact that uh, the, um, the majority of these studies were done in, uh, with training programs where they trained two to three times per week, uh, because I was looking at the supplementary files And I saw that literally all of the training sessions were like two or three per week max. And that's not really how a lot of people who are serious about hypertrophy-specific training do train. So we can't really extrapolate these findings to say, well, if you train four to six days per week, just go to failure on every set and you get more hypertrophy. And also something interesting that you said that I picked up on was you said that uh, you mentioned failure in a training to failure in a vacuum mm. but we don't train to failure in a vacuum so i actually had a few other variables that i wanted to ask you about uh, i wanted to ask your thoughts on how they might affect proximity to failure whether there's anything in the literature that might suggest um a, an answer to that or if you have your own thoughts based on your experience and uh, one a variable was uh, a variable that actually uh robinson and colleagues mentioned in the paper as well and that was um load so the relationship between load proximity to failure and hypertrophy and i thought it was pretty interesting that they suggested that with heavier loads um it doesn't seem like you need to get as close to failure to um to see that same uh, the same um, relationship that we've just mentioned Mm -hmm. whereby each repetition each set taken closer to failure is going to uh, bring more hypertrophy so i wanted to hear your thoughts on that
1: absolutely yeah so one of the, the the strongest moderate moderator analysis they found that changed this relationship between closer to failure more hypertrophy was the load relationship and depending upon the specific meta regression they did um, if we take kind of the most conservative estimate uh, it's probably like if you're training with 80 percent of 1rm or heavier the effect becomes non significant and the point estimate includes a zero, which basically just means we didn't find the same effect at all. Um, that going to failure increases hypertrophy. So, most people can do around eight ish reps with 80% of one RM, right? So, for people doing sets of, you know, six to 10, and that's pretty close to failure, uh, it probably doesn't need to be close to failure. So this opens the door to then kind of extrapolating from other research, like, okay, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. And um, if we go back a couple years into 2017, 2018, 2016, 2015, we've had some investigations of kind of what's like the, the bottom threshold for set length and number of reps for a given set to be equivalent from a hypertrophy perspective. So we have a study by Schoenfeld and colleagues, I want to say 2016 comparison of moderate to heavy loads, where they had one group doing three sets of two to four RM, so on average, like a three by three, and and damn near failure, right? And then another group doing that with eight to 12 reps. And what you probably expect is what happens, the group doing the three RMs got stronger, they got a little bit bigger, but the group doing the moderate rep range got even bigger, um, but not quite as strong. And what they basically postulated was, hey, you know, these sets aren't lasting long enough. And if we go back to fundamental exercise physiology, there's something called Henneman's size principle. Mm-hmm. And this is a, uh, basically the way th- that describes motor unit behavior. So we have motor neurons, and each one of these motor neurons contains motor units. And these motor units are innervating a selection of fibers. And those fibers are all, are all of the same classification. Some are higher threshold. That means they're fast-twitch, they only come into play when high-force or high-power demands are required. That means you instantly try to move fast, or you try to lift something really, really heavy. And another aspect, and what Henneman's size principle actually is, is that motor units are recruited on an as-needed basis in order of their size. Meaning if I was to pick up this remote control, I'm probably only using very low-threshold motor units because I have a very low-force requirement. However, if someone went ahead and snuck in a bunch of lead and gold and and put it inside of my uh, my remote control, first thank you for the gold. But second, if it weighed a whole lot more, and all of a sudden this is like a 20 kilo remote, now all of a sudden I try to pick it up and I have to recruit much more muscle fibers just to do it because now I'm like doing a bicep curl. So there is a certain point. Uh, we look at other research on EMG where somewhere between 80 to 90 percent of 1RM, depending on the movement, the muscle group. Um, you start to see kind of like a maxing out of recruitment and to then produce higher forces, at least we think theoretically, uh, we're, we're increasing the twitch rate of those motor units or mm-hmm. rate coding is going up. So this is interesting, right? Cause it kind of lines up right around this 80% of one RM thing from multiple data, data sources where, okay, if I lift heavy, I can turn everything on immediately. But yes. if I'm only going to do a couple of reps with it, that just because I'm recruiting a muscle fiber doesn't mean I'm necessarily providing a training stimulus to it, especially uh, some of these highly fatigue-resistant fibers that we have, right? which is all of the mm-hmm. ones except the very high-threshold ones, which are very powerful, but they don't get recruited very often, so they're not very fatigue-resistant. So anyway, that's probably why Schoenfeld and colleagues see not as much muscle growth uh, when you're doing this, this low-rep set. Because there's one way to recruit everything: it's just lift really heavy, and then for as long as you're lifting, everything's going to be active. Because all this, you know, size principle, everything gets recruited. Tiny mm-hmm. guys are, everybody's got to come to the party. It takes a village to lift this heavy weight, right? The other way to get there, though, is to do moderate or even high rep sets and go all the way until you're pretty damn near failure, and you're going to see different fibers that have different fatigue resistances dropping out at certain points, and other ones coming in. Our best understanding and best theoretical idea of what's going on, which is not set in stone, is that we see motor unit cycling. So as one drops out, another one cycles in, and there's kind of this process. But eventually, you get to the point where you've you've, you've fatigued everybody. Everyone, you know, they all tried, but okay, you did 15 out of 15 possible reps. We've trained everything. And once you're getting to around five or six reps or higher, that seems to be a sufficient stimulus for total hypertrophy. To be equivalent on a group average level, your mileage may vary. Individuals do def- are, are are different. Some people respond better to higher low, lower rep training protocols. When we mm-hmm. look at like meta analyses of load for hypertrophy, we don't see a different whether difference whether you training with under 60%, over 60%. When we're volume equated or even set equated, based upon a pretty cool systematic review by Bazal in 2021, and they made the recommendation: Hey, if you're training between six to 20 reps, similar RIR, you should get a similar outcome on average. Mm-hmm um and yeah there has been experimental data but not much testing kind of the low end of this so if Schoenfeld showed 2 to 4 rm was too little Mangine and colleagues uh around that same time had a group training with like a 4 to 6 rm uh and while there was a difference in rest periods between groups they actually saw similar hypertrophy and most measurements and even slightly better although i don't think that's necessarily representative of all the data in the group that was doing like five you know 4 to 6 so i t- typically say look if you're doing sets of 5 or more Those are probably roughly equivalent from a hypertrophy stimulus perspective, not strength, not fatigue, not injury risk, not anything else, but just on the stimulus side. And that's probably the reason. So if we think, okay, these sets need to last long enough, they need to be heavy enough, this opens the door to saying, okay, well, if I'm training in the, say, four to eight rep range, and I'm stopping at a two to four RIR, those sets are probably equivalent to doing a 10 set or a 12 set. 12 rep set or 15 rep set and stopping at like a one or a zero RIR. And I think that's a very useful practical takeaway from this because going to failure is pretty hard, especially when it's a full body movement, it's higher reps, it's technically demanding. Uh, And you know, that if, like, if you think about your, your traditional leg day, let's say you're starting with squats, then you go to leg press and you do leg extension, leg curl. If your first set of squats is a set of 15 to failure, Everything else that workout is probably going to suffer in terms of quality. But if you decide to do, you know what, I want to do three by five at a three RIR, that's equivalent to roughly an eight RM or 80% of one RM. It's going to sap a whole lot less recovery resources. uh, And you will find that to be less discomforting, but maybe just as effective from a hypertrophy standpoint, then enabling you to do sets of six to 10 at like a two RIR in your leg press, and then being able to do three sets of 12 to 15 where you take. All three, maybe your last set to failure on leg extensions. And that might have maximized the overall stimulus you could have gotten for quads in that workout without unnecessarily increasing the recovery arc before you can train legs again in that week or preventing you from putting forth your best muscular effort, not just overall cardiometabolic effort within that given session. So that's kind of where we're at theoretically at this point to tie a lot of loose ends together. So we can use this load data to our advantage. For exercises that are not well suited to failure and they're not well suited to high reps to inform a better training session to hopefully get a better stimulus uh, without sacrificing or unnecessarily driving up fatigue in a way that's not aiding the stimulus.
0: Thank you for explaining that uh, very exhaustively. I personally really like that finding because I think it fits very nicely with what we know about our ability to uh, predict our proximity to failure in that it seems like the fewer the reps that we do, uh, the easier it is to predict our RIR or our RPE. Whereas the the more reps you're doing, the harder it gets. So what I extrapolated from that was: well, in that case, if I'm doing 15, 20 plus reps um or or very high rep sets, it would be better to set myself or my clients a higher um rpe target or a lower rir target so so that i can overcome the um lesser lower ability to correctly predict how close to failure i am basically i don't know really how close to failure i am so it's better that i get as close as possible if not right to failure if i'm doing a lot of reps whereas if i'm only doing four to eight as you said it's a lot easier to know um, when you're about to hit failure or where on the RIR slash RPE continuum you are. So I just thought that this finding from Robinson and colleagues just uh, um, fit, as I said, together quite nicely with that.
1: It does. There's a meta-analysis by Halpern and colleagues that came out a few years ago where they tried to figure out what the uh, accuracy of people is for rating RIR and they found it's pretty good mm-hmm. on the mean the mean the, I think the median mean can't remember, which was 0.95 reps off of as an under, under prediction, which is really good. It means on average people are only one rep uh, below what they think they're at. So pretty highly accurate compared to other alternatives and likely uh, not going to impact the stimulus in any kind of meaningful way. Um, but some of the things that moderated that and made it less accurate, were doing more than 12 reps. So, and that's something yeah. we've seen in individual studies that we've done at FAU where we've looked at relationships in that regression analysis, higher rep sets seem to make the accuracy worse and specifically you think you're hitting failure before you actually are. And there are some data that could be because of this or it could be actually some physiological reason where we see higher rep sets are um, only more, as effective as lower rep sets when you are closer to failure. So the data by robinson does fit nicely with that and it also leads to some relatively straightforward logical conclusions okay i'm gonna do high reps i need to be closer to failure from both an accuracy standpoint just exactly what you said and maybe from an actual stimulus perspective okay so what does that pair well with well not squats probably not even leg extensions sorry like uh, like leg press or, or lunges or things like that so And what also doesn't pair well with things like leg extensions? Well, really high loads, you know, it's a single joint movement. So you're asking for a lot of load through a single joint. So, you know, higher joint stresses, which is not necessarily a problem or higher injury risk, but maybe I'm just an old man now at 40, (laughs) but I don't like doing sets of six to eight on leg extension. Uh, It feels more comfortable uh, for me to do a set of uh, 10 plus. Mm -hmm. So that's a nice pairing. You know, if I need to do higher reps for whatever reason, that's better for single joint movements. And that means I need to go closer to failure, which is better for single joint movements. So it it kind of gives credence to some of these things that we do naturally in practice, where we're essentially learning to pace ourselves and finding out that that pacing of trying not to uh, breed undue discomfort earlier in a workout may result to a better net stimulus. So I think it actually fits quite nicely. And it enables one to figure out what's that perfect... Uh, or, or within the realm of, of what's ideal, kind of convergence between uh, effort and fatigue. So you're trying to get that, quote-unquote, stimulus fatigue ratio for the session uh, as optimized as possible. So that might look exactly like I was talking about. You know, you've got a compound free weight movement, you're training in the four to eight rep range submaximally, and you're getting a little closer to failure as you move through um, compound lifts that maybe are easier to perform, a little more isolated, like leg press or hack squat, towards then really taking it to the house when the, uh, the downside is, is lower and using higher reps to do so.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that puts a nice bow on uh, um, the variable of load as the moderator conversation. Um, I'm not making sense. As I was telling no, you, no, it's late clear. at night for me. Anyway, moving on. The other variable that I was thinking about um, was volume and its potential relationship with proximity to failure. And um, I'm sure that you're very well aware of uh, the two camps that there are um, in the fitness community as it pertains to this particular argument, whereby there's one group of people who strongly believe that uh, low volumes with every set taken to the house or so to complete failure is better because they basically think that failure or intensity of effort is the most important variable and then there's the opposite camp that believes that volume is the most important variable now I wanted to ask you is there a most important variable do we know that which one takes the crown is it volume or is it intensity of effort and what's their interplay
1: yeah I think unfortunately these two camps which in my opinion is based upon interacting with people and you really look at it objectively versus emotionally they are both minorities, um, and most people, especially in the space I operate and who interact with me, who are, you know, if you want to listen to me talk about standardized mean differences, you're probably not firmly in, like, camp anecdote on either side, right? Um, yeah. So I do think they're the minority of voices, at least in our space. Maybe if we get out into the wild, it's a little different. Um, but even, honestly, even in the wild, anyone who's paying attention and not listening to dogma sees that people get results using both and everything in between. So when you hang out with just pure bodybuilders who've been around for a while and are, did not become infatuated for some reason with some you know icon of theirs uh, and then lost all ability to be objective, um, they'll tell you the same thing. Like, hey, you know, different strokes, for different folks, whatever works for you, you know? Um, and uh, I think there's, while you can always say that, there is some truth to it as well. So I think both camps um, by nature of being in those camps are dismissing data. And I think the most egregious thing right now that I'm seeing is that previously, before we had this data supporting, uh, you know, clearly that as you get closer to failure, you seem to get a better stimulus from hypertrophy. Um, this was an anti-science camp, right? They were like, listen, they don't know what they're talking about. There's something wrong with these studies. Uh, the people in the studies don't really train to failure. They don't know how to reach true failure. Um, and I can tell you as someone who's been lifting weights for nearly two decades, and who has been conducting research for a decade, the place where people definitely are getting closer to failure is in the lab, 100%. Mm -hmm. I've been in gyms forever. I train with bodybuilders. I train with hardcore bodybuilders. I am a hardcore bodybuilder. Um, And when you're in a lab, and you've decided to participate in a study, and you have that group pressure, and there's literally three to four people verbally motivating you around you, and you know the purpose of why you're there is to test failure, you take your ass to failure and uh repeatedly people will be like i've never trained this hard in studies Uh, that's the the most common thing so the average accuracy of someone going to failure in the trenches versus in the lab no contest it's always the lab where people are training harder so this was a, a highly uninformed view of trying to dismiss data on on failure because it's not like what we do in the trenches you know Um, As someone who's been in both environments and seeing critique from someone who's only been in one. So if you are How do you know you're biased? Well, if you dismiss science until the study came out that supported your belief set and then you jump on it and then even more So you can see that there's this revisionist version of what the the research says. So instead of going, okay, cool I'm actually buying this science now and this would be an acceptable changing of mind and I do see that there's a greater proximity to failure. And oh, maybe, maybe, maybe I can look at some other studies to figure out what the relationship with volume is. Instead of looking at other research on volume and its interaction with failure, then it's just, yep, yep, told you, Mike Messer knew, and uh, you need to be going to failure and doing low volume. But I, but I go, hold on. We have meta-analyses on on volume, and number of sets performed per week. Schoenfeld 2017, Basval 2022, one compared one to four, five to nine, and 10 plus, and found a significant effect favoring 10 plus. And then uh, someone goes, yeah, but, you know, but failure is better. Like those groups were all training to failure. So we know from Schoenfeld, we have known that 10 plus sets to failure is better than five to nine sets to failure, which is better than one to four sets to failure. Was there multiple definitions of failure? Sure. But it doesn't change the game, you know, and that's that's a really interesting thing that I've seen found is. People now going, ah, oh, well, but they weren't all training to failure. And I'm like, yo, but that's the same studies that were then using this meta regression that you're going to buy, right? So yeah. you, you can't you can't apply this unequal rubric. And then very similar, um, we also saw, uh, you know, Bas Val, who then went, okay, that answered the 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 low volume versus moderate volume question. I want to compare 12 to 20 to 20 plus, and for the most part, found that 12 to 20 produced the same outcome. So like the standard recommendation of, hey. If you don't know what your prior history was, and we're looking at group averages, roughly 10 to 20 sets is a good place for you to, you know, start as far as volume per muscle group. And by the way, all of those studies were on people training to failure. So this is assuming a close proximity to failure. I think that's an important thing. The thing I do really like about this meta regression is that it's making people be aware that the intensity matters. And I think previously, the error that people were making on the volume camp was, let's say they were on their own previously finding that they were training to failure because it's pretty common to do in bodybuilding circles. And if they did more than six to eight sets per muscle group, uh, they just really struggled to recover. So Mm -hmm. boom, these meta-analyses come out, boom, they hear some talking heads say volume is a key driver of muscle growth. And they then start training further from failure so that they can get to 10 to 20 sets. And I don't think we have data to specifically inform whether that was a good or bad decision. But what I can tell you is that's not actually an evidence-based position because mm. we don't have data on what is 20 sets to not failure versus six sets to failure, right? All we know is that 10 plus is better than five to nine to one to four, and that 12 to 20 is roughly equivalent to 20 plus. When you're training to failure, you all of a sudden remove the component of training to failure. I don't know what that relationship looks like. And uh, that, uh, the series of meta regressions that Zach Robinson did tells us something. And an interesting thing, when you look at the moderator moderator analysis, it's basically a list of all variables (laughs) besides failure that change the relationship and in all cases, weaken it, whether you're doing Mm -hmm. concurrent training, whether you're older, whether you're quantifying set volume or repetition volume, all of these things diminish the relationship of the importance with failure and hypertrophy. So what the heck does that mean in practice? It means that as you start to manipulate other variables in a program, mm-hmm. you're not necessarily having an additive effect. Volume, intensity, frequency, load, these are all interdependent variables. And we unfortunately can't just look at them each in a vacuum mm-hmm. and go, right, more volume, better for hypertrophy, uh, closer proximity to failure, better for hypertrophy. So let's do all the volume to failure. That does not seem to have an additive effect. It seems to reduce the effect of failure when you're doing high volumes to failure. And we don't know what that specific relationship is, but we know that when you start pulling multiple levers, one plus one is not equal to, it might be one plus one equals 1. 1.5. And if you pull like 10 mm-hmm. levels, it might actually be like one plus one equals negative two or something like that, You know, where, where you're just exhausting what the system can handle. So there is probably some inflection point. It's an optimization game to where if you're doing a higher volume pro- protocol, or a higher frequency protocol, or both, you need to moderate proximity to failure and vice versa. And you know what that looks like and where that kind of vector lies with the most area under the curve is going to be a different one for each person, and probably a different person at different times based upon their their stress environment. Are they prepping? they recently have a kid? Uh, what exercise are they choosing to get that volume with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what I do hope these moderator analyses from Robinson and colleagues tell us is that these are complex interactions. Um, Mm -hmm. Doesn't necessarily mean that training is complex. It's just not as simple as take all your sets to failure bro and then (laughs) do more sets. Um, It means, okay, let me think about my recovery side of this equation in addition to the stimulus side. And then what are my personal preferences? What exercises do I have access to? Historically, do I respond better to higher or lower volumes? And what's my recovery arc? Um, do I like training heavy or light? Do my joints prefer that? And am I good at actually gauging proximity to failure? Or, you know, like, like what what seems more sustainable? How long can I go before I need to deload if I'm doing high volumes at the two RIR on average versus moderate volumes on a one RIR or low volumes at a zero RIR? And if those are all maybe roughly equivalent, maybe I choose the one that I can sustain and, and maintain a really good, uh, you know, training environment for and I get all the subjective things that makes me think I'm doing a good job with, and that, in my experience as a trainer, it's different from person to person.
0: Yeah, same here. Everything that you talked about is what I take into account when creating a training program, and I found that it's uh that it's it's very different for everyone. Like for example, um, even the finding that low to moderate vol with low to moderate volumes. It, it's, it seems to make sense to train to failure um, or closer to failure. I found that for some people, if they have a an extremely demanding um, physical job and they train two to three times per week, they're not taking every set to failure. They just mm-hmm. can't recover from that. Mm-hmm. So it really, in the end, depends on the individual. And from my perspective, what I do with these uh, with these Findings. I I read a lot of papers and I interview people like you to better understand them. Uh, And then I use them as a starting point when I first meet a completely new client. Also, and I also use their previous experience with training, their own feedback of like what they told, what kind of programs they were on before, and how they felt about them. And then I create an initial program that I continue to change as I look at the individual response.
1: That's the way to do it 100%. I think um, science and uh, anecdotal experience are meant to fit together. And when you don't have prior data, when someone has been program hopping or when someone's new, um, you want to get in. You want to basically play the odds, right? Mm -hmm. If you're if you're going to Vegas here, you're going to play red or black at the roulette table, right? And the equivalent of that is looking to the the highest quality, um, largest sample size data we have. So a meta-analysis on one of these variables, right? So if I don't know what volume you're gonna best respond to, a good guess is between 10 to 20. And then from a practical perspective, okay, well, I can always add more. And I know that there's a robust hypertrophy response doing less than 10. You know, like if you look at the the percentage out of the total possible gain, when you look at Schoenfeld's meta-analysis, you're getting like 60, 60, 60, like two-thirds of the response just from doing one to four sets. And then it jumps into the 80s once you're doing five to nine. Um, and you know that some people just really can't handle higher volumes. So why would I choose 20 if if uh, it's only going to be at best maybe on average 10% better than nine? And if I can always go heavier so or or higher in volume. Okay, so I'm going to choose like eight to 12 sets for muscle group for someone who I do not have prior data on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, cool so i'll start there and monitor individual response and then after that point the element of evidence-based practice that you're paying attention to is the process rather than the data itself that is Mm -hmm. manipulate one variable at a time make reliable observations control their their recovery control their nutrition make comparisons in similar conditions you know like every three months we're going to look at pictures please do it in the same lighting in the same day of the week in the same thing let me get your 7 or 14 or 21 day average body weight Uh, maybe we take some some high quality skin folds or or measurements and that will help me understand whether or not that is working and then i have to make some estimation do i think it's working well are you plateauing and there's the subjective component that's based upon your experience and oh my god now we're doing evidence-based practice we have experience we have the personal preferences and individual differences and we also have that data informed uh input which changes when new data comes out you know so perhaps previously the decision was to focus a little too much on volume and not acknowledge the intensity component and now we're maybe moderating the perspective a little bit where the first thing we satisfy is okay i want to make sure we're training reasonably close to failure per your needs per your individual differences and then from there that's going to be the gateway to what's an appropriate volume or maybe previously we were doing something like going all right let's set volume. And then whatever we need to maintain that volume, we can drop the, uh, the RIR, right? So I think that's a, that's a relatively subtle shift in programming, but it is still an important one. And I would say that's probably on the side of the fence that I've shifted a little bit. Like if you look at how has this data changed my interpretation of things, I'm probably more mm-hmm. inclined to say, hey, especially for someone with pure hypertrophy goals um, where they're training a lot, especially like a bodybuilder we're going to be training in that zero to three RIR range a lot more where previously I was comfortable with four and five RIRs. Um, and not that I'm, those don't have a place, but they're probably going to be on our main compound lifts to start. Like I discussed earlier because of that load moderator finding that Robinson, uh, you know, produced, but, uh, yeah. So, so then, okay. If that's kind of the default, then does that downshift volume and frequency a little bit perhaps, you know? Um, so, so yeah, I think that's, a. Uh, a really good way of doing it. It's the same way I do it. So obviously I'm biased to agree with you, Nickius, but um, it is also what's advised by evidence-based practice, which is reasonably well informed after, you know, Satchett and colleagues first started doing it and completely adopted by the medical community, which, you know, depending on who you talk to, they're either an evil industry trying to destroy us or maybe, <laughs> you know, the reason why we're living into our 80s now
0: yeah that is very true um and actually i was going to ask you if this particular um series of meta regressions had changed your approach and it sounds like it changed your approach in the same way it's uh slightly shifted mine as well where before i would have felt more comfortable with a um i always get confused because i use r p e so it's like a higher r i r uh more rapid, more reps in reserve i would have be i would have been happier with a couple extra reps in reserve uh whereas now i usually start or I, I recommend a closer proximity to failure than i did before again as you say it's not a massive shift it's not like before i was saying well go to rpe2 and now everybody to rpe10 in every set it's yeah. more like before it was rpe6 to 7 now it's more like rpe7 to 9 for the majority of the sets but as you say i think it's still important because it does change ultimately the um, perceived experience of the training program so anyway thank you very much again for spending some time with me today i thought that this uh, deep dive into this particular paper was really useful and uh, really thought provoking is there anything that we've touched upon that you want to expand upon or uh, anything else that you would want to add for the listeners to know about
1: yeah final pieces i just want to say that i think it is awesome that we have these preprints that allow us to get this data out to the community faster and also Mm -hmm. to get people talking about it uh and you know critiquing it where, where 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 they they have the ability or think they have the ability to do so Because then the authors will engage with that and potentially modify their wording or change things. But it is really just important to remember this is a preprint. It has not gone through peer review yet. So the findings may change. Um, I think it's unlikely that the statistical findings will change, but perhaps the wording, the data visualizations, the way it's communicated will, what is supplementary, what's included, et cetera. Um, Just knowing the people behind this and the statisticians who are involved. they're some of the best statisticians in sports science. So I don't think anyone's going to be like, aha, like aha, <laughs> you know, like you made a boo-boo. Um, but I think it is uh, it, it's just a general guideline that when you're extrapolating based upon a preprint, that it is has that asterisk next to it. And you do check back when it has gone through peer review to see, um, you know, what what change in that process? Because peer review is imperfect. It's um, it's not bad, but it's hit or miss. It can be bad. It can be great. You know, there are a lot of papers that might have been fatally flawed without peer review, and unfortunately, there's a lot of papers that were fatally fra- flawed before and after peer review because someone missed something. But um, yeah, just anytime you're you're reading these preprints, and there's a lot of them now, which is fantastic. Just make sure that once it has gone through peer review, you check back, see if anything's changed, and then you know, reserve your judgment, your final judgment until uh, it's gone through that formal process of publication.
0: And circling back to what we were talking about in our previous conversation, don't just limit yourself to the one Instagram post and don't just limit yourself to reading the preprint. If you are if you really want to learn, you need to take the time to go through the paper again once it gets officially published after peer review as well. Well said. Well, Eric, I believe that in this week, one week that separated the two conversations you wouldn't have anything new to plug is that right or is there something that you want listeners to know about
1: no nothing new um it, i think for those who do subscribe to mass um that was a good time the uh the september 1st issue which either will just be coming out or just came out depending on when this podcast releases uh we'll have some really good discussions in it i wrote a uh, research brief specifically on uh, our understanding of volume mm-hmm. um, And uh, like, what can we expect a change to be? How did we get here? Kind of like the history of volume research and some of the common misconceptions. I think people will probably enjoy that if they listen to this conversation and found it informative.
0: Oh, thank you. That's excellent. I'm really looking forward to that. Now mass is in two days time. It's my favorite time of the month. So I'll definitely be delving into that.
1: Awesome, man. Well, make sure you give me, give me your feedback. Let me know what you think.
0: I will actually. And uh, with that, Eric, thank you for your time. Dear listeners, Thank you for tuning in, as always, and I will speak to you next time. Lastly, if you want to support the podcast and help me reach more people, please leave a five-star rating or review on any podcast platform that you're using. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll speak to you soon.